Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob, the D&D wannabe, coming in before the show to share some great news. New news! Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. (sighs) I love the smell of boiling flesh in the morning. It smells like victory. What is... What is that? Who's there? (laughs) Hold it right there, you hellspawn. You may have slain my companions, but you haven't won yet, Balthazar. Not while I still stand. Ah, yes. The minstrel. To be perfectly honest, I'd quite forgotten about you. Forget me? Ha! You'll remember me for the rest of your increasingly short life, demon. Believe it! Wounded as you are, you don't stand a chance against my magic or this flashing blade. I am indeed injured. And so is he. But he gets his next turn before I do. This doesn't look good. Prepare yourself, monster. This is the end for you. Here I go. True strike! Uh, Ah. Is... Is that it? Is that it? <laughs> I laugh. I'm afraid that you don't comprehend the doom that has befallen you. You see, I have used the power of this spell to peer at short distance into the future. I've anticipated all of your possible reactions so that now, with this magical clairvoyance, you'll have no hope of dodging this next attack. With this simple spell, your fate is already decided. So you're... Not going to attack me. Weren't you listening, fool? You haven't realized that you're already dead. Sure, you may be safe for now, but you may as well spend your turn praying to whatever foul god awaits you in the afterlife. Because now... Hold, hold on, I'm sorry. You had the opportunity to attack me right now, while I was vulnerable, before I had the chance to respond, and you just... gave it up. Well... Well, yes, but but it was all part of my plan to... So you're fine with me just taking my turn now? A turn I could use to roast you, like I did your allies. <sighs> sure, I guess you could try that, but, but next turn I'll be twice as likely to hit you with my flashing blade. Ah, twice as likely. So rather than attack twice with the potential to deal damage to my perfect Cambian physique two times... You decided you'd risk it all on being only twice as likely to puncture my pectorals once. Uh, well, when you when you put it that way, I... Um, wait a minute, you're one of those valor bards, aren't you? Don't, don't you attack twice per turn? Ah, a worthy opponent. Someone who recognizes my great skill with their dying breath. 
Finally, I've found someone who's capable of being my rival. <laughs> so you forsook not one, but two opportunities to slay me this instant for the chance, the mere chance, to make only one of your next two attacks on your following turn only twice as likely to hit. You gave up four attacks to make one of two thrusts somewhat more likely to access my entrails just... Just how stupid are you? I mean, intelligence isn't my highest stat, but hey! Stop insulting me unless you're gonna cast vicious mockery or something, alright? Now go on! Take your last turn. <laughs> no. No cantrips for me. I'm not giving up my two attacks on pointless preparation. I'm not wasting my turn. Yes, still smells like victory. Welcome back, friends and adventurers, to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration, your favorite Dungeons & Dragons podcast. And if it's not, please don't tell us we have sensitive feelings. Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Rob. I'm the D&D wannabe, uh, Twitch streamer, YouTuber, co-host of this podcast with my twin brother, Steve. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm also here. I don't do anything else important or significant, but I sometimes talk about D&D, so here we are. So, Steve. Yes, Rob. You know, we've recorded a year's worth of episodes on this podcast now. Indeed we have. You know one of my favorite ones that we recorded? Was it the one with me in it? No, that didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, you were in there, but that's not why. All of my favorite episodes are the ones with me in it, except for the one that had the Godfather in it. That one was also pretty good. That, <laughs> that was also pretty good. And I forgot, you haven't been in all of these. Nope. Technically, I did have one week off that you didn't. One of my favorite episodes was when we compared our lists of best and favorite feats with one another. So uh, I figured we would do something like that again. Of course, we already did feats, and I floated the idea of doing spells, but you made a very good point as to why maybe that was a little ambitious. Right. So between all the different source books that currently exist for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, there are 534 spells. And while I was pretty excited about the prospect of tackling all those, they would be pretty hard to rank. So I brought this information to Rob, and we decided to limit the list a bit, and maybe take it one piece at a time. Starting, of course, with the very first piece that any spellcaster would get access to. Good old cantrips. The endless, bottomless source of magic that all spellcasters have access to. These are pretty much the building blocks of the spellcaster class. These are your your auto attacks, if you will. These are the arrows in your quiver, the bullets in your gun, the things that you are going to be solving most of your problems with until you get a fairly significant amount of spell slots with which to tackle the problems you're going to have to face. 
Not the bullets and the gun or the arrows in your quiver, because those are things you can run out of. Ah, fair, fair. This is the bayonet at the end of your rifle, so when all else fails, you've still got something to fight with. But there's more to cantrips than just damage. There are 46 cantrips to select from, and they run the gamut from parlor tricks to damaging spells to some veritable Swiss army knives in terms of how much utility they provide. Until you get access to some of those higher level spells that really break the game, cantrips are your trusty sidearm. They're old reliable, right? Uh, You are going to be using them when you are out of all other options, and some of them are good enough that you're going to be using them anyway. Maybe even when you have access to those higher level spells, cantrips never stop being useful. Right, these are the only spells that grow along with your character. Most characters get them at level 1, and then when you reach certain benchmarks like 5th, 11th, and 17, most of the ones that deal damage will increase along with you, and in so doing, try to keep pace with the martial classes that would be getting extra attacks and other major features like that. Right, so the ones that provide utility will always provide that utility, and the ones that deal damage never become entirely irrelevant. So... Cantrips are always there for you. They're a caster's best friend. So, out of these 46, how do we possibly go about the process of narrowing it down to just 10 that we can recommend to our listeners? And it will be just 10. We're not going to do Steve's top 5 and my top 5 and Steve's bottom 5 and my bottom 5. We actually talked ahead of time for this one and decided on... I guess our personal top 10 that we would recommend anyone playing this game probably should take, or at least look at more than once as a viable option. I really enjoyed the surprise that we got from keeping our lists separate from one another and kind of the adversarial back and forth that we got as we compared our lists of top 10 feats. But when we went to cantrips, we did just like we did for the feats episode. We compared our top three choices to see if they would line up at all. And, and they were the exact and they were the same. exact same three. <laughs> and so then we went down to our top five, and they were the exact same five. We went down to our top seven, and you know what? The order got a little bit mixed up, but we were still listing a lot of the same spells. So we ended up with, I want to say, seven that we agreed on just by default. And then, you know, we had to talk and compare notes about three of them. But I think that now we have, for Bardic to Inspiration at least, a pretty definitive top ten list that we can talk about. And boy, we we did kind of argue back and forth about those three. I almost wish we'd been doing that in front of the microphones a little bit. But that was a lot of talking and a little bit of learning on my part about some cantrips that I basically overlooked. And then me fighting tooth and claw to make sure that one particular spell made the cut. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of points of contention, but I think we pretty much worked it out. So without further ado, let's start getting into this. Now, how did we narrow that whole list down to just 10? What was our criteria that we put forward. Well, I mean, some of the things that we've already talked about. For instance, a cantrip that we want to include in this list does have to be useful at all levels. Level 1 through level 20. And while almost all of them do march along with you and continue to upgrade and be more useful or at least never dwindle, there are some that kind of disappoint in that department. And they didn't make the cut. Right. Casting classes are going to get the opportunity to retrain their cantrips whenever they would get an ability score increase. And there are some, like, say, Shillelagh, which are fantastic at early levels. And I would say practically an auto-include for druids. But as that druid increases in level, while other cantrips gain damage, 
Shillelagh does not. So, you know, maybe at fourth or eighth level, you're going to eventually look at maybe something that's going to provide you with a little bit more utility. So things like Shillelagh, unfortunately, didn't make the cut. We want one that you're going to want to keep the whole time. We really wanted Shillelagh to be on the list, too, because I, for one, played a low-level druid in your Lost Minds of Phandelver campaign. I was very disappointed that we had to take that <laughs> off. I did not realize that the damage did not scale. We had to go back and change our list after we agreed on it because we forgot to read the spell. <laughs> we just It was such an auto-include for us. We are like, oh, and, and Shillelagh, right? Yeah, Shillelagh. And then we went and read it. This is why I need to play in more high-level campaigns. Rob, run more high-level campaigns for me. <laughs> so, not only do they have to continue to be useful no matter what level you're playing at, but we'll also give a nod to any cantrips that are useful in multiple situations and invite players to be creative to really maximize their potential. Characters get so few cantrips. As opposed to all the other different levels of spells, you can eventually retrain and learn more first-level spells as you increase, or more second-level spells, but the number of cantrips that you know will always be finite, and it's not going to be a very high number. I think sorcerers get the most at early levels, and they get five, but most of the other classes are fairly hamstrung when it comes to cantrips, and you only get to retrain a cantrip when you get an ability score increase, as opposed to retraining other spells, which you get a chance to do every level. So picking your cantrips is actually an integral part of your character creation process. What spell your character is going to have constant access to is something that is going to define them throughout their progression. So picking one that's going to be applicable in more than one situation, super important. Of course, unless you're playing the druid or the cleric that get to decide every morning what cantrips they get to carry around. But definitely for those classes that don't get that freedom... It's an important choice. Very, very, yes. Now, there are several cantrips that do fairly similar things. Now, we did make it a point to pick only one of those. So, if various cantrips can perform similar functions, we only picked the one that we felt was the most impactful or the most versatile. So, you won't be seeing Thunderclap and Word of Radiance and Sword Burst on this list because they all have the same area of effect and damage dice. So we're looking for the ones that are the best of their kind, but only one of each kind. Right. Otherwise, this top 10 list would look very different. We would have very similar spells filling up all the top spots. And nobody wants that. That's not nearly as entertaining to listen to. At least it wouldn't be to me, so we're assuming it wouldn't be for you. I tell you what, as we go through, we can mention the uh, the runners-up in those categories, with the understanding that they've been completely outclassed. <laughs> Speaking of class, by the way, if you're playing a particular class that pretty much requires, or maybe it's better to say is defined by a particular cantrip, we're going to include that on the list. Odds are it's probably good enough for other reasons to stand on its own, and that's why it's been included and why it defines the class, but it was a consideration when we were whittling down our list. Finally, the last qualification that we were looking for is something that opens up a new playstyle, which is to say that these cantrips allow you to do something that you have no other way of doing for several levels, or something that you will have access to later on, but that expends very high resources or requires you to take a feat. We were looking for cantrips that would go ahead and give you access to something that would be very difficult to replicate otherwise. In some ways, 
completely unique abilities. And that's basically it. Based on those five qualifications, Steve and I met over the course of a couple of days and whittled ourselves down to this top ten. Now, Steve said, as far as we're concerned, I mean, this is pretty much the list. I mean, you could argue that some of the lower cantrips on this list could be replaced with something else, but uh, we're pretty confident at the top. You know, I'm thinking that we have actually talked more, in person and otherwise, about this topic than we have in at least... 11 or 12 months. Like, we had a lot of discussions before we started the podcast on some of the topics for those intro episodes and compared a lot of notes, but I think that, by and large, this is the most that we have discussed. <laughs> we have never had to be so on the same page before as to narrow 46 options down to 10 and agree. We did a lot more agreeing on this topic than we did in some of the things we've covered in the past, too. But we didn't just have to agree, Rob. We had to rank them, and we had to agree on the ranking. <laughs> anyway, anyway, why don't we get to the actual list? Number 10. All right. So, in my opinion, cantrips are good for more than just damage. And if you want to get damage, there's other ways to get that. But something has to be said for the highest single-target damage cantrip, or at least the highest single-target potential damage cantrip. So the number 10 spot goes to Booming Blade. Booming Blade, yes! Before I get too much into it, let's just go ahead and have a look at the spell, shall we? When you cast Booming Blade, you make a melee attack with a weapon that you are holding. Now, that already makes this fairly unique as cantrips go. There are not a lot of them that actually allow you to use the weapon that you're holding and deal its associated damage dice when you are making the attack. It has this weird caveat where the weapon has to be worth at least one silver piece, but that doesn't rule out a whole lot. At any rate, when you successfully hit with the weapon that you're using as part of this spell's effect, your target becomes sheathed in booming energy until the start of your next turn. And if that target willingly moves five feet or more before then, they will take an additional 1d8 thunder damage. Can we talk about booming energy real quick? What what is what does it look like to be sheathed in booming energy? I'm thinking like rippling sound waves. And I don't know why it would work like this, but I'm picturing like you're caught in a bubble of rippling, warbling sound waves, and that when you exit, when you pop the bubble, that's when the sound goes off. I just feel like a Golden Age comic book writer wrote that line, you that are a five-year-old. What what happens when you hit him with the booming blade? You are surrounded by booming energy. Think of it as your strike is creating a sonic boom, but it's like a delayed sonic boom, a latent sonic boom. And they have to touch the bubble to realize they've entered the Omaiwa Moshindaru situation. They don't realize that they're already dead until they touch the bubble. So let's get uh, this little bit out of the way. This cantrip is available for sorcerers, warlocks, wizards, and artificers. Kind of a weird list. You don't have a lot of sorcerers brandishing weapons about. Uh, wizards either, unless you take the Blade Singer, which didn't come along until long after Booming Blade was published. But warlocks and artificers can get a pretty good amount of use out of this spell. Not only is your target getting hit by whatever your weapon normally does to targets you hit with it, but they also have the potential, this condition, for extra thunder damage. So, 
This can be kind of a control spell. You incentivize or disincentivize your target from behaving in a certain way. That can be a powerful effect on a battlefield. I am a big board gamer, and we've talked about some of my favorite board games in the past, but one of the things that I am extremely cognizant of is an ability that is powerful even if you don't use it. To its fullest potential. Well, that's just it, because it has potential to be used and it has potential to not be used. So Booming Blade is interesting, fairly unique in the fact that it has the potential to deal a lot of extra damage, but the threat of that damage happening if your target moves may incentivize them to stay still, which has its own set of benefits. It forces your enemy to do a cost-benefit analysis on their next turn. Correct. Do they move and take damage, or do they stay still and stand next to the guy with the sword? The fun part about this is that the rest of your team can then use their turn to incentivize one side or the other of that equation. They can make it difficult for that target to stay in place and incentivize them to leave and therefore trigger the damage. Or safe in the knowledge that if that target moves, it will take additional damage and is therefore disincentivized to do so, they can use their turns accordingly. Either way, something good could happen as long as everyone's on the same page. And are you something good will happen. Either you know exactly where your enemy is going to be next turn, or they're going to take damage. Either way, you win. And let's talk about that damage, because that's the reason that we already stated that this cantrip is on the list. Right. 1d8, if they move, is not all that much. But as soon as you hit level 5, that initial strike with the weapon that you're holding gets empowered. It gets, what, half a Divine Smite slapped on top of it when you hit level 5? An extra d8 of damage? Whether or not they move... Right. That's what's unique about this spell, is both the damage of the melee attack and the damage of the boom. The punishment. Here comes the boom. <laughs> and the damage of the boom also increase. So while most spells will increase by a single damage die at 5th, 11th, and 17th level, this is increasing by two. One, whether or not they move and an additional one if they do, making the maximum damage potential for this spell at 17th level, 3d8 on hit, and 4d8 if they move. And Rob, that is in addition to the damage that the weapon that you hit them with would deal. Which, I mean, let's face it, you're 17th level, you're probably not hitting them with a club. <laughs> it's some enchanted... Big-ass sword that talks to you while you sleep at that point, right? Let's go ahead and assume the maximum potential. If you're a Hexblade Warlock, you could be wielding a great sword. That is going to be 2d6 plus 3d8 plus 4d8 if they move. And that's not including any bonuses for your Charisma modifier that you would be adding to the damage, whether or not you used Hexblade's Curse or anything like that, and whether or not your weapon was even magical. Right, and let's not forget the ever-popular padlock. There's nothing to stop you divine smiting on top of your booming blade. True. Or eldritch smiting, for that matter, as well. And you know what? This is a melee attack. God forbid you crit on this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only opportunity cost that you have here is the fact that you can't take an extra attack with this feature, as you could if you were... A Bladesinger Wizard... Who, Bladesinger Wizards get that, right? Bladesinger Wizards do at 6th level. Okay, and I know that Hex Blades and Artificers can get an extra attack as well. That is the only opportunity cost that you have to take into account 
when you use this cantrip. You cannot use it and get a second attack, but the damage on it is so good that unless you're crit fishing, it's probably worth it to go ahead and cast this, especially if you know that someone else on your team can incentivize that target to move because there's just no beating that extra 48. So it's because of all this potential and because you can work together with your team or control your enemy that we decided to give Booming Blade the edge over other high damage spells like Toll the Dead. On paper, 4012 to an injured target looks a lot better than Booming Blade, but Booming Blade has more potential than Toll the Dead does. Toll the Dead is never going to get better than that 4012. Booming Blade very much can, and quickly. And Toll the Dead is a standalone spell. It's going to do well for you. And as an individual, it's admittedly hard to capitalize on Booming Blade. But guess what? This is a cooperative game you play with your friends, and I bet your friends can find a way to get an extra 48 damage out of your turn. So, there you go. Booming Blade, number 10. Let's move on to number 9. This was also one of your hard-fought cantrips to make it onto this list. And you did a good job of convincing me, so I'll let you do a good job of convincing our listeners. Surprising everyone, not least of which Rob and I, the number nine pick for Bardic to Inspiration is... Shape Water. Okay, so we mentioned that we're only letting one cantrip of a particular kind into this list. So, Shape Water is ruling out Mold Earth, it is ruling out Gust, it is ruling out Control Flame. So, what's so special about Shape Water? Alright, let's talk about that. Shape Water allows you to control water that you can see within 30 feet of you that would fill a 5-foot cube. That's a lot of water. You can apply one of the four following effects and have up to two of them active simultaneously. You can instantaneously move or change the flow of water as you wish up to five feet in any direction. You can form the water into simple shapes and have it animate at your discretion. That change will last for one hour. You can also freeze the water provided there are no creatures within it and the water stays frozen also for one hour. Finally, you can change the water's color and opacity. The water must be changed the same way throughout. This change lasts for an hour. That's not why we picked it. Why we picked it is because I have watched Avatar The Last Airbender. And one of the Hallmark characters, Katara, carries around a little jug of water with her, which she shapes and does a lot of creative things with. As I read through this spell, everything that she does with that water that is not dealing damage, you can pretty much do with this cantrip at will and up to two effects at once granted not in near the same capacity but let's talk about a couple of things that you can do with a little bit of water <laughs> well you say a little bit that's 37 gallons of water that can fit in a five foot cube damn that's not an insignificant amount that is more than enough to make a difference in somebody's day either for good or bad yeah, that's basically a garden tub. That's a garden tub full of water that you can move around how you want. Or, you know, move into the air and then turn into ice and then drop in somebody's head. <laughs> right. So Rob brought up a good point when I first brought up shape water, which is, you know, water's not going to be everywhere. But that's when I started to consider the Katara angle and how much water could a adventurer reasonably carry with them and what is possible with that much water. And turns out, it's a lot. So, a couple of things that came to mind. 
The fact that you can freeze the water gives you a lot of different options. You could pretty much make steps or a ladder or at the bare minimum a couple of handholds in order to help you climb somewhere. You can make a little bubble of water around your head and thus use it to make a kind of a diving helmet to allow you to stay underwater a little bit longer. You could even stay about five feet below the surface and make yourself a water snorkel <laughs> to stay underwater almost indefinitely until you become uncomfortable and pruney, making basically any old pond a decent hiding place. You could do the Robin Hood thing. You remember the old Robin Hood cartoon with like the foxes and the bears and stuff where he does yeah, that little trick yeah. with the reed when the archers are shooting at him? You could do that without the reed. <laughs> you could also, bit by bit, do a little Moses thing and part a body of water or... Walk across on dry land, make little lily pads, or walk on the surface of the water by freezing bits of it, making it hard. You could even create a boat for your friends out of any body of water and cross it, as long as nobody <laughs> minds their personal space being invaded. Yeah, as long as it, do <laughs> as long as it doesn't get you know more than thirty feet away from you, you'd have to be the uh, the guy taking it back and forth. Yes, and let's hope all your friends are halflings or something small, but it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, I'm just now thinking of a weird scenario where where you say you walk across on dry land. You know, it's not like you could part the sea, but you could make a little five-foot waterless cube in which you walk along the bottom of the river to get to the other side. I mean, also true. Also true. And that's not even getting to the point where you can animate the water and make simple shapes. I mean, just the party trick of this of going to somebody's pool and making it into a fountain at a party for the next hour that looks exactly like them. Or imagine the ice sculpture business that you could get into by just taking this one cantrip. You'd be invited to all of the king's galas. <laughs> to say nothing of the most important feature, never having your drink get warm. Ah, uh, that is something. Constant access to ice that does not water down your whiskey. <laughs> is a thought that people in medieval times could only have dreamed of. You know, if they had the spell Shape Scotch, that would have made the top <laughs> of my list just period. I briefly considered Mold Earth for this spot, but there's just not as much that you can do. You can't shape the Earth. You can only move it. And don't even get me started on how Control Flames is one of the worst cantrips in the game, if you ask me. I think it has a home but not near the top of the list. You just get so few cantrips, though. Like, there's always going to be something that I would take over Control Flames. If I got Control Flames for free as part of, like, a racial feature or something, I would be excited by that, and I would use it all the time. But even as a druid who can retrain their spells every morning when they wake up, I don't think I would ever pick Control Flames. Maybe if I exclusively knew that I was going into a day that had no combat and I thought it was just going to be a party... Sure, maybe then. If I were playing a circle of wildfire druid, though, and my whole thing was being a pyromancer, I wouldn't pass up the opportunity to make shapes and change the colors of flame in a Gandalf-style moment with the rest of my party every night when we were resting. Yeah, I know you make a lot of decisions that are purely for roleplay. I, I, I gotta have something in addition to that. Like, I will roleplay having a good spell... Before I will, uh, before I will take a bad spell that matches the role play that I was already going for. And hey, I, I'm not arguing that it should replace shape water. I don't think it's, I don't think it's hot garbage. But shape water, you are correct, is just more versatile and it's better for you in more situations. 
So the next time that you make a character listener and you're looking at shape water and thinking, how often is this going to come up? Carry a couple of gallons around with you. You know, if you're not Katara, then be Gara from Naruto. And just instead of that big pack of sand on your back, carry some water around. That's a great way to use your carrying capacity. Because if you get a little creative, you can do so much with this. Uh, say nothing of it, a canter of endless water. Uh, but <laughs> speaking of spells that are always useful, you don't have to take anything along with you to make good on our eighth choice. Number eight. So this one was on my list from the beginning, but you know, okay, hold on. Let's 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 address the elephant in the room here. All of the bottom three were your suggestions. <laughs> Because we all empirically agreed on what the best top ones were, but you've just spent more time as a player casting cantrips than I have. And you you knew a little better than me when it came to this topic. I've had a lot of regret, is what it boils down to. I've taken a lot of cantrips that ended up not being useful. I can barely count how many times I have taken the mending spell and regretted that decision so much. <laughs> I want to like that spell so much, and I just don't. I swear, rules is written, the DM has to intentionally break something in such a way that it can be fixed by mending in order for you to be able to use that cantrip, because just most of the things out in the world that you will find broken, it will have no effect on. So, I nitpicked at a bunch of Rob's suggestions until he agreed that some of them weren't quite as good as he wanted them to be, leaving room for what would have been his 11th choice to make it here. So, number eight is a cantrip that Critical Role, if nothing else, definitely made famous. You can reply to this message. You can reply to this message. <laughs> message is inarguably a great cantrip. I, again, the only reason it didn't make it onto my top ten in the first place is just because I thought there were better ones. But that's not to take away anything from message. Being able to communicate with your party is pretty dang essential, and being able to keep secrets from your enemies, also essential. One of the first things you do when you want to wage a war is to make sure that you have ample communication with all of your units. One of the first things you attack on the enemy side to disorganize them is to attack their ability to communicate. It is an incredibly high priority when you're trying to organize an offense or a defense. We learned that from Star Wars Episode One. <laughs> so the ability to discreetly communicate with other people nearby is just invaluable. In most situations. Huge. All right, let's talk about what this cantrip actually does. You point your finger towards a creature within range and whisper a message. The target, and only the target, can hear the message and reply in a whisper that only you can hear. This spell can travel through solid objects if you are familiar with the target and know for a fact that it lies beyond that barrier. There are a few things that can block it, say magical silence, a foot of stone, an inch of metal, a thin sheet of lead, or three feet of wood. But those are things that you can take into account before you use the spell, and it won't be terribly inconvenient in most circumstances. Also, the spell doesn't have to follow a straight line. It can travel freely around corners and through openings. 
so it'll always take the path of least resistance. And the range on this thing is 120 feet. 120 feet. Now, that's not forever. You know, you probably have to be in the same building or on the same property, but you don't have to be right next to one another to have a whispered conversation. If you imagine bodyguards or a security detail all trying to guard the same person or object, and all of them having those little radios in their ear, uh, same sort of idea. You're coordinating with people close by. As awesome as this spell is, let's note that it is not telepathy. Anyone who can see you can tell you're doing something weird. Now, they can't hear what you're saying, but they can see you pointing your finger and whispering into a little piece of copper wire or your spellcasting focus, and that is probably enough in a magical world to arouse someone's suspicion. The four real problems I have with it are those qualifications, right? You have to point your finger, but you can do that discreetly. It's not like you have to point your whole arm. You have to actually mouth the words. You do open yourself up to having others read your lips. You do actually have to verbalize your message. It just cannot be audibly heard. And people that read lips, which is a thing that people in D&D, just like real life, can do, would be able to understand that message. Well, there are ways to disguise what you're saying. Even just a hand over your mouth is pretty simple. Or hiding it behind a fan as a debutante, if you would. You also have to know exactly where your target is, but it's a cantrip. If you're wrong about that, point your finger in a slightly different direction and try again. <laughs> and finally, that you have to be the one initiating the conversation. But again, you can cast it as often as you want. You just have a five-minute check-in with every member of your party if you're in a dangerous situation. I think it's particularly good for a stealthy member of the party to have, because then you can just hide in a corner or in a pickle barrel somewhere and just cast it to your heart's content. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple of uses for this. The one that comes immediately to mind is infiltration. You need to get a message to your guy on the inside and you need to do it without anyone noticing. You duck around a corner, cast message. Now that little piece of wire between your fingers is a two-way radio that you can use to communicate short messages as often as you need to, as long as they're still within range. But a creative player, unlike myself, can think of all sorts of different things that you can do with this. Right. Uh, I'm actually I'm a big fan of Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah. So rather than hiding inside of a bush and feeding lines to a guy standing next to a bush so he can woo his lady love, you can do that from outside the building or from the bar across the street. Oh, that would be a good one. Let's say that you're trying to gain access to some sort of erudite arcane library. So the wizard is the only one who is qualified to enter and request access to the collection. But the wizard dumped his charisma stat. He has to go in there and persuade the curator to give him access, and the bard can sit comfortably outside and feed words to the wizard. As a DM, I would either allow the wizard to roll with advantage, or maybe even just allow the bard to make the check. You know, since you're talking about gaining access to places, imagine that the rogue is trying to get the rest of the party into a particular hideout. And there's a set of phrases and responses that must be said in order to gain entry. Some thieves can't, yes. Yeah, exactly. So the rogue does his piece first, gets inside, but waits just inside the door to hear the phrase given to the other members of the party and can silently whisper the correct responses 
back to them so that they can all follow and stay together. Oh my goodness, I hadn't even considered the fact that you could use this to feed someone else words in a different language and have them fake being a native speaker. The example that I had next in mind was that you could use a spell like message to be able to communicate some secret information. Maybe say you've entered a round of gambling and you want to be able to feed your rogue what the other players got in their hand. Right, a little bit of a tip as to whether to call that bluff or not. Well, I think that we've spent enough time talking about message. It's good. Having a fantasy walkie-talkie with all your friends within 120 feet on speed dial that no one else can hear is good. Yes, as you said, no arguments, message is good. Moving on. Moving on. Number seven. And now we come to me contributing to this list at long last. (laughs) Yes, number seven is the one that Rob had to convince me of. And I'm sure that the rest of you out there are going to hear this and say, Steve, this wasn't on your list? What the heck is wrong with you? And a lot of things is the answer to that. (laughs) Not the least of which is, as I've said before, I apparently lack the degree of creativity to take advantage of certain spells. And a lot of the ways in which I would use this spell, I have found other ways to do so just as effectively. But Rob convinced me that this spell has capabilities that others struggle or find impossible to replicate. And I'll admit, it wasn't very hard to convince me of this. I just said, look, I'm not going to take it. Just because I don't take it doesn't mean it's not good. Let's find a place for it. And turns out that place is right here at number seven. So Rob, tell me about why you have decided that this is the place for Minor Illusion. Minor Illusion. All right. So I don't think we've talked about it much on the podcast, but Illusion is probably my favorite school of magic in Dungeons & Dragons. Just period. It has definitely come up once or twice. (laughs) Has it? Okay. Well, I love this school. Maybe we just don't talk about it as much as you'd want to. Okay, before I allow Rob to gush about how much he loves illusion magic and this spell particularly because he can cast it as much as he wants, let's talk about what it actually does. So using minor illusion, at will, you can create a sound or the image of an object within 30 feet of you that lasts for one minute. Where sounds are concerned, the volume can range from a whisper to a scream. It can be your voice or someone else's. It could also be an animal's voice or the sound of musical instruments. Caster's choice. It continues unabated for the whole minute or until you decide to silence it. You can make the sounds discreet or even change them as the minute continues. If you decide to create an object, there are limitations. There has to be a difference between this and the higher level illusion magics out there. It's a static object, fairly small, no bigger than a five foot cube. It can't emit sound or light or smell or any other sensory effect, and physically interacting with the object reveals it to be an illusion because it can't stand up to scrutiny. And finally, here's the part that made it so easy for Rob to convince me that it belongs here. The part that I recognize makes it fundamentally different from every other cantrip. Namely, that unless any creature that observes the object or hears the sound passes a successful investigation check against your spell save DC, they are convinced of the object or sound's legitimacy. Which it's important to note, this is not a saving throw. This is not something that everyone exposed to this stimulus has to make a skill check against. This requires them to spend their turn investigating it 
And if you are using this spell well, the creatures that you are trying to mislead or distract with your illusion are going to have better things to do. Now, quick point of order. You may think, but guys, if you had to convince Steve that this is a spell that deserved to be on this list, how did it make it all the way up to the number seven spot out of all 46 cantrips? Question for you, Rob. Mm -hmm. How many of the monster and NPC stat blocks that exist in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition currently have a creature that is proficient in investigation? I didn't know you were going to ask me this question. I'm entirely unprepared. I got to imagine that it's only certain NPCs in various adventures. I don't think your average monster is going to be proficient in that. Monsters in 5e aren't proficient in a lot of skills in the first place. No, not really. I gotta imagine it's a low number. It's a very low number. Do you want to guess how low? Uh, 40, if I take all the NPCs into account. 40. Oh, very close. Very close. Out of the 2,453 available stat blocks on D&D Beyond, 50. Oh, are proficient in investigation. Very close. That is only 2%. That means that unless a creature has a naturally high intelligence score or was homebrewed by the DM, these illusions are pretty often going to be taken as fact. Even if they spend their action investigating it, which again, they're not likely to do unless you give them a reason to. Most creatures, ourselves as real-life human beings included, just trust their senses right? If I see a chair across the room, my first thought is not going to be, is that a real chair? <laughs> it's going to be, ah, nice chair. Might sit in it if I get tired. You know? I do. And I admit, I did count the number of investigation proficient monster stat blocks after we had already made our list. I would actually accept if you told me that this should have been number six or maybe number five. After that, I'm pretty happy with what we've got. No, I, look, I'm just happy to have it included. Minor illusion in the hands of a creative player with a DM who runs things, rules as written, is a terrifying concept. That said, I've hardly ever used it successfully, and when I do use it, I found that the effects that I used it for could have been achieved with another cantrip, which is why it did not make my top ten list initially, but I was easily convinced it definitely deserves to be here. As, as we've had that conversation... In my games, the cantrips that you might use to achieve similar effects just don't cut the mustard compared to Minor Illusion, even with Minor Illusion's limitations. Let's say that I'm an arcane trickster, one of my favorite subclasses to play in the game, and I'm on the run, and I need a quick way to shake my tail. People tailing me. Uh, you, you understood that, I hope. They're chasing me. I've got a little bit of a lead. I turn a corner in the alley. I cast Minor Illusion, which has only somatic and material components. There is no sound when I cast the spell. There is no warning, if you can't see me, that I've cast the spell whatsoever. I create the image of a crate. I hide behind the crate and seem to all the world as though I have vanished down that alleyway. And in the moments of confusion that follow, I can make good on my escape. Or perhaps... I run into a house with some muddy feet, and I can make a misleading set of muddy footprints going in the opposite direction that my actual muddy footprints are going. Will it save my butt in that situation? Maybe not, but will it give my pursuers a moment's pause, or potentially lead them in the wrong direction? It could. 
Maybe I have gained entrance to a fancy soiree under the pretense that I am an accomplished minstrel when really I'm all thumbs. Well, I turn my back to the rest of the party, cast some minor illusion, and suddenly the most wonderful lute solo is coming from where I'm sitting as I twiddle my fingers helplessly over the chords. No one is the wiser, unless they have a reason to believe that I'm not actually doing it, which I'm trying to dissuade by turning away from the rest of the party. Minor Illusion's good for some stuff, man. You can do a lot. The only limitations on the spell are how far from you the point of origin can be, how many effects you can have going at a time, and your own imagination. That and, as opposed to some higher level illusion magic, it does have to be a static object. But, like you said, that leaves a lot of room. A lot of room, Stephen. I love this spell. I love this school of magic. As you correctly pointed out, the ability to cast some sort of illusion anytime you want to without expending any of your resources for your class is a big deal. Correct. The only reason that it fell in this spot for me is because there are other cantrips that will produce permanent effects, but we'll talk about those later on. I don't know how long we've been talking about minor illusion, but I know that Rob could go on and on about how to use it to your advantage for probably a whole episode. So, since we still have six other cantrips to talk about, let's move on to number six. Number six is a cool one, and it's one of the few late additions to the cantrips list that made the list. Uh, What can I say? They kind of knocked it out of the park with uh, some of those OG cantrips. But Tasha's Cauldron of Everything gave us a good one in Mind Sliver. All hail Tasha's. Mind Sliver is an excellent cantrip. Now, it doesn't do as much damage as some of the other ones that we've had on this list already, but I think that the closer we look at it, the more impactful you're going to see that it can become. Let's go ahead and go into the details, shall we? Yes, Mind Sliver. So... You drive a disorienting spike of psychic energy into the mind of a creature you can see within 60 feet of you. That target must succeed on an intelligence saving throw or take 1d6 psychic damage. And subtract 1d4 from the next saving throw it makes before the end of your next turn. And then it, you know, upgrades when you hit 5th, 11th, and 17th level to do a little bit more damage, but that's not the important part. Yeah. 1d6 damage is pretty easy to replicate. And let's be honest, psychic damage, not the best damage type out there. Still better than Vicious Mockery. True. Which is why, spoiler, Vicious Mockery did not make this list. As much as I love it. I consider those spells to be fairly comparable, right? They're both spells that do a little bit of psychic damage and apply a debuff to an enemy. But, given the opportunity, I would always rather debuff an enemy's saving throw than their next attack roll. Right, there are so few mechanics in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition that will enable you to lower an enemy's defenses. There's, There's a handful that will help you hit them. There's a handful that will stop them hurting you. But mechanics that make your enemies worse at saving throws? That's rare. That's very rare. And spells that target saves are some of the most impactful ones in the game. Hold person, hold monster, dominate person, dominate monster. Banishment, Blight, Feeble Mind, Eye Bite, even Fireball is a saving throw. Fireball is going to do something whether or not they save, but some of those higher level spells are save for nothing. If you save, there is no effect. 
And that's a waste of a high-level spell slot that really could change the encounter that you're in. And sometimes you just really need those bad boys to land. And that's a sickening drop in your stomach when they don't. But you can set yourself up for success by taking the prior turn to cast Mind Sliver. Something that you can do all the time, anytime, as a cantrip, so that you can effectively deliver a one-two punch and come in with that high-level haymaker next turn. Right. Importantly, Mind Sliver lasts long enough for you to capitalize on it yourself, but you can also apply the debuff to allow one of your other party members to have a better chance at hitting their target with their highest-level spell. I'm looking at you, true polymorph. <laughs> what if that dragon weren't a dragon? Now, granted, you know, you have to burn through legendary resistances and stuff like that, but legendary resistances are a thing anyway. And any creature that doesn't have them or has theirs depleted will suddenly be subject to things like finger of death. And, you know, things that increase your spell save DC are a little few and far between in Dungeons & Dragons. It's hard to be a caster sometimes. So even the somewhat paltry amount of lowering a saving throw by 1d4 can make all the difference in the world to your caster. Now, since this is a cantrip, it is also saved for none. If you make that intelligent saving throw, you don't take the damage, and you're not removing a d4 from your next saving throw. But that's an intelligent saving throw. One of the least common and least defended saving throws in the game. That's true. Do you know how many... Look, I, I have just, I've wasted my entire day looking over the monsters on D&D Beyond, let's be honest. But I find this stuff just incredibly interesting, and so humor me. Do you know how many monsters on D&D Beyond have proficiency in intelligence saving throws? You know I don't. So, so let's, uh, you're going to ask me to take a guess again. So let's try... Just go percentages. Um, less than 3%. No, actually, there is a saving throw that monsters are only proficient in 3% of the time, but it is not intelligence. Intelligence is actually the next step up. Oh, we're just going to have to do an episode about this at some point. I'm so excited to talk about all the stats that I've gone over. Oh, boy. Intelligence saving throws are proficient in monster stat blocks 13.7% of the time. Second lowest out of all of the stats. Second low. That is still way more than I thought, though. But importantly, even if they are proficient in it, I'm going to try and say this without sounding too demeaning to fictional monsters. Not a lot of stuff has a high intelligence ability score in the Monster Manual and Associated books. True. And, you know, let's be honest. The things that have high intelligence scores, you're probably not going to run into too many of them at low levels while your spell save DC is low. Mm. Uh, and it's really easy to look at a group of enemies and figure out which one is dumb. Yeah, yeah. So that is why Mind Sliver makes this list. It has a fairly unique effect that you can cast from a safe 60 feet away using only your voice, keeping both of your hands free to do whatever else they may be needed for, and challenging the second least proficient saving throw for all monsters. Hey there, listener. Eh, sorry to butt in, but you know the drill by now. As long as these episodes take to create, they take a lot longer to edit. And normally speaking, we try to keep things around an hour per episode. So when the conversation goes on for two to two and a half hours, like it did when we discussed cantrips, we have to make a cut somewhere in order to keep some sort of consistency in our release schedule. But don't worry, the conversation continues. 
and we'll be back in two weeks to bring you the exciting conclusion. See you then. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out.